This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. This week has been crammed with news. The Queen's funeral, Prime Minister Lapid's speech at the UN, and I'm not saying it's more important than all of this, but an unholy special event with Q&A that we will get to later in our program. A debut for us, a live event. The first time Unholy performs in front of a live audience. Somebody at the live event actually referred to us as the Unholy. <laughs> I wondered I if you noticed on the that. Road. I think we should. It's, it's good I for did, our merchandise. I, it is. I want to wear the T-shirt with Unholy is on tour. Um, in London, I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian. And in Tel Aviv, I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12. And this is Unholy. Unholy to Jews on the News from Kesha Podcasts. Uh, how did the week look over there, Jonathan? Well, the week absolutely was still beginning, at least, consumed by the death of the Queen. I mean, this huge funeral on Monday, an absolute spectacular uh, Britain, more precisely the palace, does this, I think, better than anyone else. Uh, I was covering it. It was uh, just uh, an, an extraordinary thing and people wondering if anything like it could ever be staged again, first time in 70 years. At the actual service, I think, was not the sort of main event. It was these processions, these pageants. It was something very spectacular. And, um, you know, I think people now are talking about other things. Politics has resumed. People, their gaze is going to the rest of the world, you know, Vladimir Putin making some saber-rattling noises and so on. But uh, those 10 days of national mourning have absolutely left their mark. Yes, I mean, I mean the whole world was watching, right? I mean, you... Uh... And, and and watching impressed at the way that this uh, country handled itself and at the way the, the procession ran. And, I, you know, I had a friend uh, writing to me, wow, these people, they really know how to run a funeral, right? I mean, it's uh, it was really an impressive uh, event. It is. I mean, I think it's partly because politicians are not involved. <laughs> um, there is this whole other level. It's partly the military, but the palace run these things. And they issued this timetable saying the gun carriage will set off at 2.22 p.m. or whatever. And you thought, okay, oh, come on, it can't be too. It will arrive at 3.01. And it did. Yeah. You know, you looked at your watch and there it was. It was absolutely perfect. And um, yeah, it's sort of an advertisement for for just the sheer theatrical genius of this country there is a theatricality to it and the and the royal family know that they know they have to put on a show and at the center of it was this uh, at times very poignant sight of the new king who whatever else is going on was also saying farewell to his own mother yeah. and you know there were little moments there of it being a human funeral a, a mm. family funeral through that people who've gone through their own losses their own funerals remember many couldn't because of COVID, they couldn't be collective funerals, or very limited anyway. So, you know, a lot of a lot going on emotionally in that mm -hmm. event, but also just beauty. I mean, the music, all of it, it was done mm -hmm. rather brilliantly. What now happens to that institution is a conversation for another day, but not certain by yeah. any means. Yes, I remember um, the play. There was a play um, called King Jar uh, Charles III, Mike Bartlett, I think, wrote it, and it, it kind of chronicles what happens the minute Charles becomes king. And it's, let's say it isn't uh, pretty. <laughs> I think the end of it is that tanks uh, um, are in the streets of London. He has to abdicate. So let's hope that will not be the reality, but definitely definitely a new era um, uh, upon you over there. I, I don't know if to use the same term 
to what is happening in Israel right now. Uh, You may have noticed we are in an election season, 40 days uh, left to go, a very, very long election season. And today is going to be a pretty dramatic day for Prime Minister uh, Yair Lapid because he is going to be speaking uh, in front of the United uh, Nations, the uh, General Assembly. And uh, from what he has been telling uh, diplomatic correspondents here in Israel since yesterday, he is going to reaffirm his backing of the two-state solution. That's a big deal because uh, let's say that this issue has been sidelined for a very long time, not only when uh, Netanyahu was prime minister, although he also uh, reaffirmed his commitment to this two-state solution in a speech in front of the UN in 2016. But it was it has been sidelined. It's also been sidelined when Naftali Bennett was prime minister. This is putting this issue front and center. There are all kinds of reasons for this. But I think that we should, of course, notice this. It will happen. We're recording this on Thursday noon. This will happen Thursday evening Israel time. Uh, and it, it's going to be a pretty big deal, I think, especially in this uh, very drenched in politics country that we are right now. It's interesting to me because, of course, the audience there in the UN will be delighted to hear that. The international community want to hear that. Mm -hmm. That's their position as well on the Israel-Palestine conflict and has been for a long time, two states. And they've heard much less of that from Israeli leaders, certainly from Netanyahu, as you uh, say. So it's a big deal for them. But I'm interested to know whether that causes... It depends partly how he puts it, doesn't it? How he words it. Because, you know, as we've been saying, in his moments, Netanyahu too could say two-state solution. It it means a whole myriad of things to different people. It depends how he puts it. I think the polling is that Israelis, yeah, they say in principle, no problem with the idea of it. It's when the actual reality, when you put flesh on the bones of that idea, Mm -hmm. you start talking about what the borders are, what the territories that Israel would have to give up to make that happen. That's when you start getting the opposition. And it will be interesting if that plays badly for him in an election where I suppose Israelis have lots of other things on their minds and would rather not start fighting about what always used to be the theme of Israeli elections, namely the existential question of the relationship with Palestinians. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to ask, uh, why is he saying it and why is he saying it now? And one reason is, of course, politics, because Yair Lapid is looking at the whole board, right? And what he sees is Benny Gantz. Remember, this is a very unique kind of race, because what you have is not a, a, and we talked about this, right? Not a two-way race. It's not Lapid versus Netanyahu. But inside the center left, there's also Benny Gantz, who declared that he wants to be prime minister. So he's another rival for Lapid. Now, Lapid is looking at the board, and what does he see? He sees Benny Gantz, the minister of defense, taking on the Palestinian portfolio for the past year, right? Remember, he met Abu Mazen in Ramallah. Uh, Abu Mazen came to him in Rosh Ain. That was a big deal. He was holding the Palestinian portfolio. So now Lapid kind of wants to take it from him because he he looks at where is he going to scrape a few more mandates, maybe from Labour, maybe not, but definitely he can take those kind of left-leaning voters who thought about voting for Gantz and now take them away. So that is politics, but it's not only politics. What we see on the ground in recent months is sort of this These tensions, right? We talked about this since the beginning of the year. 80 Palestinians killed, Israelis, 20 Israelis killed in in incidents, in terror attacks, in in all kinds of uh, events in the territories. That's a high number. We're we're looking forward to the uh, high holidays. And I think this is also an attempt by Lapid to kind of calm uh, everything down and say to the Palestinians, there's a vision, there's a plan. 
we might go to forward with this. So please, you know, calm down a little bit. Uh, and definitely maybe trying to thwart uh, Abu Mazen's own speech tomorrow at the UN. But giving this sort of, I mean, it's not only politics. I was trying not to be as cynical as to say this is only politics. I think it's also, it has to, uh, to do with uh, security issues on the ground. Yeah, I mean, diplomatically, absolutely. He wants to preempt the narrative that, look, the Palestinians want peace and Israelis don't. So he gets mm -hmm. in there first by saying, look, we do too. I think there was a credibility issue there, which is what you say this now. You've actually been in government, not as prime minister, but you've been in government, you know, over a year, 18 months nearly. And so this is a bit late to say that. So Palestinians would have the right to question the sincerity of it coming to it, you know, now. But I think the domestic point is interesting because at first blush, you think, well, what's the benefit for him of of even tacking slightly leftward given that it's all about these blocks there's a so there's the as we've often said the pro bb camp the anti bb camp just to change the makeup of the anti bb camp so there's a few more for lapid's party and a few less for labor doesn't change the basic arithmetic which is can you get the overall anti bb block to be more than 60 seats in the knesset right. but you make this extremely good point which is that there's one bit of the sort of uh, forest where there are votes there that are potentially outside, and that's that Benny Gantz there's, party. There's yes. not an Israeli that's thinking, should I vote for Lapid or should I vote for Netanyahu? No such Israeli exists. And if you find no. him, please bring him on the evening news because that would be newsworthy. But there are Israelis that are thinking, should we vote Gantz or should we vote Lapid? These are the people I think he's trying to lure into his Yeah, and, and the, the thing I was just going to say was that and Gantz, unlike a Labour leader, Merav Michaeli, or someone from Meretz or whatever, isn't a lock on being in the anti-BB block. He's somebody, as you've said on the podcast mm -hmm. uh, many times, he's that rare thing of somebody who can play on both sides of the board. And that's mm -hmm. what... So there's really good political logic there. I just wonder about the credibility of it, given how, you know, to my eyes, it looks so late in the day for him to be talking yeah. about this. He's, you know, even within, within his own very brief prime ministership, he could have said this earlier. So we had a, quite an exciting event uh, this uh, week, an unholy live conversation that uh, was um, facilitated by our friends at the uh, Center for Jewish Impact. And we thought it was a, quite a good fit for us, uh, since we like to talk about uh, Israel and the Jewish world and the world at large, and the Center for Jewish Impact fosters these conversations, dialogues, partnerships between Israeli civil society and the Jewish global and the diplomatic community. So we thought it goes together quite well. Uh, and I thought it was a pretty interesting conversation. Jonathan? It was. I mean, we've been hearing informally, I think both of us, that we found a little following for this podcast, particularly among diplomats in the diplomatic community, representatives of countries abroad who are based in Israel, but also around the world. So we've both been hearing that. And therefore, to uh, do record an edition uh, of our podcast live and in front of them and to hear their questions from representatives from Greece, Albania, the U European Union and elsewhere, really engaged. And uh, no, I think it was a very fascinating experience for us as well, we hope, as for them. This is a very special edition of our Unholy podcast in front of a live audience. Everyone at their computer screens, but live audience uh, nonetheless. Um, together, we are going to take a very deep dive into Israeli elections 41 days in as we sit here 
on Wednesday and what they mean for Israel and for the world. And we're also going to be answering questions, but being the Jews that we are, we're going to be probably answering your questions with some more questions of our own. So Jonathan, do you want to get us uh, starting? I'm surprised we didn't go for two Jews, three questions, um, <laughs> at least. Um, there's going to be a lot of, of questions. I mean, the first one is re really, I suppose, that you know, how on earth is Israel going into elections again? I mean, plenty of people will have thought, hang on a minute, we had one of these not that long ago, and one before that, and one before that. Um, most uh, democracies have an election cycle where there's an election every four years. In Britain, it's every five years. Israel seems to have made this an annual event. How come? How come we're back again with you um, getting the white suit that you wear on TV dry cleaned again? That's your election <laughs> night outfit. Regular viewers will know. How are we back? At, you know, how on earth are we back in this position again, Yoni? Yes, and how did I not organize my contract around these election night broadcasts? Because as you say, just to, to throw this statistic at you, right, I at the end of this year, We'll have been anchoring the evening news for 20 years on Israeli television. This will be my 10th election night broadcast. So that is, on average, one every uh, two years. How did we get here is a very good question to start our conversation. Look, we are stuck for a reason. This isn't like a natural disaster that some countries have hurricanes and some countries have elections. There's a reason that we are stuck in this position since basically April 2019. Now, being Israelis, we're not going to agree on what the reason is. because, And now we have to pause and say something that's probably... The most important thing I'm going to say in this whole conversation, Jonathan, the old divisions of left and right and everything that everyone has always said about Israel, thought about Israel, that is gone out the window. There is one important division and it has been around for a few years now, and that is the division between the pro-Netanyahu bloc and the anti-Netanyahu bloc. Now, the reason we are stuck, to be very, very brief on this, is because there is a tie between those two blocks. The anti-BB block will say, listen, you need the, the man who is indicted in three different corruption cases, standing trial, refuses to leave the political system, and until he does, we will continue to be stuck. The BB camp is saying it's exactly the opposite, because you are banning one important leader of the most uh, dominant party on the political map, that is the reason we are stuck. And if you just rescind your decision to ban him, we can form a government in five minutes. Those people also will also point out to the fact that the Supreme Court did not rule that Netanyahu cannot continue to form a government. So that is why we are in this position and we'll continue this discussion. But we might be in that position for a while now. It is a kind of um, Groundhog Day, uh, this question of, to, you know, to be be or not to be be <laughs> is basically the question Israelis face, it seems, each time, each election Cycle, you were mentioning that you've been anchoring the news for 20 years. I am, um, have been a journalist even longer than that. But in my youth, as a cub reporter, really, in Washington, D.C., back in the mid-1990s, guess who was Prime Minister of Israel then? <laughs> in 1996, elected um, one Bibi Netanyahu. He has been around so long, to the point where, I have to say, for people outside the country, and whether they're journalists or diplomats, I think some of the diplomats uh, listening to our conversation may relate to this. The only question is Bibi coming back or not? And I think there will be a lot of people who, frankly, won't really know who the names or know the names of the intervening leaders, currently Yair Lapid, previously Naftali Bennett. All they know is it wasn't Netanyahu. And then they <laughs> sort of, you know, tell me when it is again. Otherwise, 
the rest is sort of detail and commentary. I found it, you know, really interesting, you, your question about him, or your point rather, about him being in effect almost banned from, you know, the prime minister's office by these parties of the right uniting to thwart him and, and block his path to that seat that he has sat in longer than anyone else, including the first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. I mean, as a first question, you know, I'm going to throw back to you is, does he still have that sort of radioactive toxicity on his own side, the nationalist mm -hmm. right, that would prevent, we know Naftali Bennett is out of the picture now, but the likes of Gidon Saar and other figures of the Israeli right from sitting down with him again. We know that was a big deal last year, the year before, big enough to prevent there being the formation of a steady or stable government, certainly one with him in it. Is he still political kryptonite to those mm -hmm. former allies? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, you, you you completely focus on the interesting point because the reason Netanyahu couldn't form a government, first election cycle, I'm taking you back to, it seems like ancient history now, April of 2019, we thought he has a sta had a stable government. The exit polls at 10 showed... He had a 65-member coalition. Today, that would be anyone's dream, right? Um, and then a Victor Lieberman, his former right-hand man, the man who was his chief of staff, the man who helped him, you know, uh, ascend to power, said, no, no, I'm not going to join Netanyahu. And after him followed suit, you know, Gidon Saar, and of course, Naftali Bennett, who crossed the road to become prime minister and thus extracting himself from the Netanyahu bloc. Yes, so that is the reason. Is he still toxic for these people? Right now, Yes. Um, and of course, for Yair Lapid and of course, for Benny Gantz, who, as you, I remind you, between elections three and four in May of 2020, actually decided to, yes, form a government with Netanyahu uh, under the promise that he will become prime minister in rotation after him. Netanyahu didn't keep that promise. That's how we arrived at election four. I'm sorry, I'm dropping a lot of information on everyone's I, head I'm now. just shocked, Yoni, <laughs> shocked that you told me a politician in Israel did not keep their promise. I'm, Doesn't I happen. To, I, I need it's to very rare. fainting couch. <laughs> It's very, very rare. Um, so for these people, he's still toxic. Yes. How long will that continue to be a th an issue if we might see ourselves after election five reaching election six is a question. And by the way, the question on the other side is how long will the Netanyahu bloc keep together? It has by the way, quite remarkably, just think of the fact that the ultra-Orthodox would not leave his side for four election cycles, including now being thrown out of the government and in opposition, they would not leave his side. What will shift if Israel will not manage, if Netanyahu will not manage to form a government this time, by the way, still an option that he can reach that magic number 61. We're always talking about that because the Knesset has 120 seats and 61 is the majority you need. Still an option. You said something about his sheer longevity. I think we have to pause on that. We have been through four election cycles, a global pandemic, a flare-up in Gaza, and a tectonic historic government in Israel, and we're still sitting here and asking the same question we asked after elections won. Can Netanyahu form a government? Can he reach the magic number of 61? That is really incredible. It is. I mean, the you, um, unholy listeners will know, were the person who predicted what at the time seemed a wild scenario, uh, which was that somebody who was barely on a whole lot of other people's radar, namely Naftali Bennett, could be the next prime minister. You said this. And you thought um, I was oh, wacky. You thought uh, I was wacky. And, and you were right. I mean, he, you know, people didn't think, think see it was coming, but he, in that last cycle, you got that right. So what are the other scenarios that we should watch out for. Um, you know, you're so good at sort of modelling out the kind of different 
outcomes that can happen. So what are some of them that we should be preparing for mm. on election night and in the you, weeks that follow? You want me to give you my crazy scenarios? I'm yeah, not go just, crazy. I'm not, go not crazy. just doling those out with no, you know, any more uh, sort of convincing on your part. No, I'm kidding. Look, um, again, if we need to give the percentage points, I would say that right now we're looking at two main options. One would be, as you say, Netanyahu with a I wouldn't call it a comfortable majority. It's not going to be comfortable. Even if he gets the 61, he will have a coalition that is very unruly with uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir that we can uh, discuss a little bit, the far, far right of the Israeli map. And with the ultra-Orthodox, it's not going to be a picnic for him. He might try to pick off someone from the other side, the anti-BB bloc, right? Someone like Gantz, someone like Gidon Saar. What will be their incentive to do that? I'm not sure. Um, there is uh, uh, two. There are obviously two other options. One is Benny Gantz becoming the prime minister. We talked about this a little bit on the podcast in recent episodes. If he manages to break away the ultra-Orthodox from Netanyahu's block and become prime minister, because he is the only player on the board who can basically play on both camps, that doesn't look likely. But Israeli politics has already proven to us that, you know, the unlikely can become the possible quite quickly. If I had told you two years ago, you know, not only Naftali Bennett will become prime minister, it sounded pretty wacky, but he will reside over a coalition with an Islamist Arab party and merits of the Israeli left, you would have said, you know, go see a doctor because you sound a little crazy. So that is an option of Benny Gantz. And of course, the option of somehow Yair Lapid not only be staying as caretaker, ahead of a caretaker government because we're going to six elections, but actually becoming the, the prime minister proper, it's not in the numbers, but again, it could happen theoretically that this is in, is in play. I think we should take a question from one of the we very should. eminent diplomats who form our uh, live audience today. And in advance, some of our uh, very uh, eminent uh, representatives of foreign governments have sent in some questions. And let's kick off with our first ambassador to pose a question. Uh, let's hear that one. Hello, I am Bardil Tsanai, Albanian ambassador in Israel. My question is, how the panelists would describe the voting shift in the upcoming election in the view of new coalitions occurred between political parties? So this is right on the point you were making. Uh, ambassador Sanai of Albania asks the question of, of, of a voting shift in the upcoming election that's partly in the light of that that new coalition, so-called coalition of change, that very you know interesting experiment. We had on our podcast Shimrit Meir, who was a really close advisor to Naftali Bennett as prime minister, who I think described it, you'll tell me, was it a magnificent failure? or a, 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 I think magnificent failure was the phrase she, she used. Yeah, that's the frame. Or she said glorious failure or a glorious something. Failure. Glorious experiment that failed, yeah. Yeah, I mean, an experiment that failed. It was how she, having, and she just quit the, the, you know, her post there just weeks before the coalition unraveled. But she described it, you described it just a moment ago, this sort of improbable collection of political parties ranging all the way from a former settlers leader, Naftali Bennett, leader of the settlers in the West Bank, all the way through to the left party, the anti-occupation party of Meretz, including, as you said, the Islamist party, Ram, an amazing and sort of improbable motley crew of parties. The ambassador asks from Albania a question that I have to say is on my mind a lot too, which is, is the premise of the election that Israel is going into now, that whether it was magnificent or not, that that effort was a failure, that actually it was not a success to have an Arab party 
in government, that it was not a success to have the left and parties of the traditional right working together? Or is there a constituency of Israeli voters who say, yeah, I really liked that. That was a different kind of politics from the Netanyahu brand of politics. I liked seeing Arabs around the table and leftists and rightists joining together. So I think, you know, often elections are a judgment on what's gone before, up or down, a referendum on whether it was a success or failure. So on that question, where, where are Israelis at on their judgment of the government that's just gone? Um, well, <laughs> first of all, it doesn't have to be either or, I think. You can think it was a failure, which, I mean, it was because the government didn't survive. It lasted for a year and then it lost its majority in the Knesset and had to dissolve. So it was a failure. It's not only a PR story or a premise, it really was. And you can still say, but I like the fact that there was uh, cooperation between all sides of the political map. And, and when you hear what Yair Lapid is saying, he gave an interview to The Atlantic, he said, I am the answer, the centrist idea of putting all these people together is the answer, answer to populism, right? Had it worked... Israel could have uh, um, exported this to under other countries. I think there are Israelis who, who liked this government. They're in the center left of the of the political map. But you're right about the fact that the way that this government is judged will have an effect. And I think the main question here, and this is, there are two things to watch in this in this election. Two things that will the key decisions that will actually uh, play into what the results will be. One is the Arab vote. And to know what the Arabs are going to vote or what the voter turnout of the Israeli Arabs will be, you have to ask the question. This historic experiment with, for the first time, uh, a party, an Islamist party, an Arab party inside the coalition, do we think it's a failure? Do the voters of Ram, the United Arab List, think it was a failure? And the general question is, uh, the general answer would be, it wasn't a great success. It wasn't a great success, I think, in their view for a few reasons. One, they didn't get enough of the budget they were promised, at least 30 billion shekels. They got about four because of the time, right? It was a, a government that lasted for a year. The other answer is there was still a, a problem of violence, especially gang violence in the Arab community that hasn't been dealt with well enough because, again, not enough time. And and third is the issue of the Palestinian issue. We still had flare-ups in Gaza. We, there was still an issue in the uh, Dome of the Rock. So I think that the Arab society in general, to the extent that I can say what they feel, is they feel like they didn't get a good enough deal. I think that might affect the way they vote next time. And that will, of, of course, affect the results of, of these elections. Yeah. And on, on that, I mean, the the word is that the joint list, that coalition of the Arab parties that did not include Ram, the Islamist party, is not going to be cohered and a block on offer again for the next election. And the, uh, well, you tell me, but the, I think the expectation is that the overall Arab turnout will fall and therefore mm -hmm. Arab representation in the next Knesset will potentially be lower than it yeah. was. And that suggests a verdict, which is troubling because the reason why Yair Lapid was right to say people around the world were looking to some extent, obviously, you know, you know, within parameters, but were interested in the fate of this coalition and his framing as a rebuttal, a rebuke to populism was partly, yes, people from across the divide working together. It seemed like an antidote to polarization. But there was a specific issue there of a minority, an ethnic minority in the country, national minority, mm -hmm. that was, you know, more that was at stake here than just the fortunes of Mansour Abbas and, and the Ram party. It was about can, for the first time, an Arab political party form part of the governance of a majority Jewish state. And so mm -hmm. a big question was on the line there. And so I and others will be looking at these results to see what's the verdict. What do Arab Israelis say about that? And what do Jewish Israelis say? And it seems as if so far, 
they're not really giving it a thumbs up, that notion of participation in the democratic system. And it may be a step backwards to the era when a lot of Palestinian citizens of Israel, Arab Israelis, did not take part, sort of boycotted mm -hmm. the but, democratic system. Yes, but again, the joint, uh, as you see, right at, right at the buzzer, the joint list broke apart. And it broke into, you have the United Arab List, the Islamists who have run apart, uh, uh, divided from them last election as well. And then you have running together the Hadash, which is the Communist Party in Tal. I'm trying to not go too granular on this. The more middle go class granular. Arab system. We like granular. <laughs> so you have the, the Hadash Tal running together, which is the more sort of the communists running with the bourgeois, if you want, the communists running with the middle-class Arab society, Ayman Oda and Ahmed Tibi, and you have Balad, the nationalistic Palestinian-Israeli party. The minute they are detached from the Ayman Oda and Ahmed Tibi party, that may allow from, for Lapid to sit with them in a government or have some sort of coalition deal with them. They would not play that game if Balad, uh, the nationalist party, the Palestinian party, would be with them. So that is a, a question of what a... Who will pass the threshold? That's a good question. Obviously, when you look at an exit polls on election night, if there are more than one or two Arab parties that doesn't cross the threshold, Netanyahu is the next prime minister of Israel. I mean, that would be an easy way of seeing what, what the results are. Yeah, I mean, that's why the, that was the founding logic of the joint list, to ensure mm -hmm. that you didn't have votes that went to waste by falling below the threshold. A, a point, by the way, that applies to a whole lots of different sectors of Israeli side of the left, for example, with that we talked about that on last week's episode of Unholy, the question of whether they would cohere into a block of merits and labour, uh, etc. Because the fear under Israel's system is that if you don't get enough votes to clear that bar, those votes can go to waste, which is why parties sort of club together. and Which, and which is cohere. why Netanyahu was worried about uniting his block to not lose even one vote, whereas the other side is a bit more, arrives a bit more messy to these elections. I, I'm, I'm echoing that line by Bill Clinton, where he said Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. So it's definitely to say that the right side of the political map, or I, I, I correct myself, the pro-BB block of the political map is more organized and in line than the left part. Just think of how many people think anti-BB block that they deserve to be prime minister. Not Yair Lapid, right? Benny Gantz, Merav Michaeli, and others, Avigdor Lieberman, all think that they should be the prime minister uh, and not Yair Lapid. Well, we have another question. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our second question, Yonid? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, you know what? Let's just uh, hear it. It's question number two, and we'll talk about it later. I am Fidel Reyes Lee, Guatemala Deputy President of the Parliamentary Friendship Group Guatemala and Israel. I want to ask about the next elections. Do you think that this time the elected prime minister will complete the constitutional period? So do we think that the prime minister this time will serve out the complete constitutional period, which would be four years? I <laughs> yeah, mean, it you would know, be... It took me a minute to, to try and remember what the full period is. It took me, I was like, what's the full period? Is it four? Is it <laughs> it's four. It's four. When did this last happen? Uh, 2009, I think, was the last time Netanyahu uh, became prime minister and then uh, stayed prime minister until, until 2013. Since then, there are only early elections called. That is amazing. And it was a novelty um, then, by the way. Yes. It, it, it's not the norm. I mean, you know, like in American political rallies, the crowd are chanting four more years. In Israel, it's four more months because you just never know when they, when a government is going to fall. But go on. They, what do you think to um, Dr. <sighs> Reis Lee's question from Guatemala? His question uh, from the Guatemala-Israel 
parliamentary friendship group really interesting. What's on the card? You know, if I'm looking at my magic eight ball, first of all, let's let's have a government, like let's form a government, which I can't even bet all the money in my pockets on that. I prefer to bet all the money in your pockets, to be honest, than mine. <laughs> so I can't even bet that that um, will happen. It doesn't look like it because, again, the one thing that is ailing the political system in this country still exists no matter what, which is that deadlock between I'm sorry to sound like I'm repeating myself, but it's between the anti-BB camp and the pro-BB camp. Until that is resolved, in one way or another, I don't see a full uh, a government holding on for four years, sadly, because I think Israel really needs stability. It has serious issues to deal with. I'm sad to say that I, I don't see that happening in the near future. No, I, I'm sort of with you. And why don't we go to Somebody, uh, Carrie Hart has offered a question during the conversation saying, why hasn't there been electoral reform up until now? And what will it take to see that in the future? I mean, this is the thing, isn't it, with these constant election cycles. And as you said, you just it's a one-off that we have to go back more than a decade to remember a, a government serving out its full term. People from afar look at this and think, well, the obvious answer is to change the electoral system, which builds in this kind of instability where there are so many little parties. I know the threshold has been increased in recent years to, you know, back in the day, it was when I first started following Israeli elections, 1% was enough to get you a seat in the Knesset. Uh, now it requires a bit more than that, but still in the single, lowish single figures. So, um, you know, is there anybody having that conversation? Or is there anyone, mm. you know, on the op-ed pages in the Knesset themselves saying, this is a crazy way to run a system and we should actually have some electoral reform. That was a question from Carrie Hart listening to us. Yeah, I'm going to uh, add to this a question, uh, by the way. It was just very similar from uh, Israel Chai in Atlanta. It's a question that we got as well. Do you think the electoral sh threshold should be lowered, they say? Ever since it was raised, we saw political uh, turmoil. Well, I think that the political turmoil is not only due to the electoral threshold that was raised indeed in 2015 to three and a quarter. That means you need four mandates to get into the Knesset and not one or two. It is a question. And to answer, I think, Jonathan, first of all, you can't change the rules of the game while you're still playing the game, right? And only, I think, when things actually settle down will we be able to discuss this at length and see what can be changed. I think the argument about the threshold is an argument that we should have. I'm not sure if the uh, answer is, by the way, to raise the threshold to the extent that only big parties can enter or lower it so much that you have splinter parties and then it's going to be maybe easier to form a coalition, but it's not. I'm not sure it's going to be a stable one. I don't know what the answer is, but it's definite that you can't ask these questions while the whole thing is still going on. Now, I'm going to turn this on you for a minute, my friend, and ask you, because what concerns me as an Israeli is, is how this whole thing is being portrayed outside. Because it does, first of all, it looks like we're, you know, we're not doing anything but going to the polls. When I hear these uh, international reports about Israel, I'm like, are they making fun of us? Like, that is my, my uh, thing. But also what, you know, obviously, Ben Gvir being a phenomenon, Itamar Ben Gvir of the far, far right, might in the polls get 10 or 12 seats. That's 10% of the Knesset. What does that mean if he wins? And if Netanyahu sets up a coalition that looks like that, what does that mean for the way Israel is portrayed outside of the borders of our country? Well, I think that the degree of interest in this uh, election and Israeli elections has been a story of diminishing returns in a way. The fact mm -hmm. they have become more frequent has 
coincided with and in part triggered a shrinking of the interest. That said, I notice, and I've been wondering about this a bit anyway, Israeli elections, it seems to me, always have sort of two stories that are yielded. One is the top line of who is going to be the new prime minister. There's very often a phenomenon, a party that sort of erupts and gathers attention. Remember, the Pensioners Party was the story of the thing. There was Yair Lapid himself. Do you remember what year that was? It was 2006. I'm just quizzing it. Uh, yeah, no, this okay. is, we, you're getting us onto our top trivia topics here. I would have guessed 2005, but that would have been the wrong year. So um, the Pensioners Party was once. Um, Yair Lapid was once himself. His father was once the big sure. sensation, the Shinui party. Mm. You know, you go all the way back to, you know, the uh, precursor of the Shinui party back in the 70s. There are these things that come and go usually. We've said before that Yair Lapid is a very notable exception to that rule because he mm. has stayed the course over a decade in politics. I wonder if the second order story is, and maybe we should get onto them, of the next election is going to be Ben Gvir and the religious Zionism party. The idea, you know, it's easier for me to say this than you, but a party of the far right, of, of a racist and fascistic party, is how certainly they will be described internationally, not just breaking through so they're represented in the Knesset, but getting a dozen or more seats. That I'm, I'm placing a sort of bleak bet with myself that that will be the story to come out of election night. And so what about them? We, you know, what's going on on the right? Who, you know, what, what, what's the pitch that is being made to them? What are the things their, you know, candidates are saying? I read and find it, you know, striking that the idea of young ultra-Orthodox voters who used to mm -hmm. just fall in line and vote for their ultra-Orthodox parties are quite drawn to this man, Itamar Ben-Gvir, and his very populist, aggressive, ultra-nationalist, chauvinist, and racist message. But what do you, what can you tell us about what's happening on that part of the wild shores of the far right? Well, obviously, this will be a question and a huge question on election night. How many seats will this religious Zionist party of Batal Smoltich and Itamar Ben-Gvir receive? I think a lot of people will look at, and, and we talked about Itamar Ben-Gvir in one of our previous episodes, and you said, that, you know, what happened to Israeli society? And I, I said, it's not only Israeli society. We need to see this and zoom out of this phenomenon and see that populism or extremism is an answer to very complicated problems is an issue the world over. And he's part of that phenomenon. Obviously, the Israeli public has moved to the right to the extent that some of his ideas seem more palatable. And he himself has managed, is a very charismatic figure, has managed to gloss over a lot of his opinions so they become palatable to the Israeli constituency. I, I uh, think I told you the story of him, uh, of a kind of video that caught him explaining to supporters, stop yelling death to all Arabs, yell death to all terrorists, because he understands that the way to get into the Israeli mainstream is to sound less extreme. And, and again, is the Israeli public since the year, since the second intifada, that has gone through uh, an immense amount of terror attacks has changed. It has changed all of us. And I think that that explains a little bit about how the Israeli public moved to the right and explains some of the Itamar Ben-Gvir phenomenon. And of course, this will be something to, to follow very closely in these elections. If he in any way becomes part of Netanyahu's coalition, um, that's not going to be an easy life for Netanyahu. 
Also, I think it will be some sort of a dilemma for Ben Gvir himself. Will he want to stay in sort of an opposition to this government? Will he want to enter into Because the minute he does, he becomes part of the game, and then he's less attractive to the people who want the anti-establishment uh, hero, which some of them see him as that right now. I think um, relevant to this is the diaspora. Jews in the diaspora, will have, their collective heart will sink at the thought mm-hmm. of somebody like him i think you know there are obviously there will be diaspora supporters of ben gvir people in the uh, uh, jews around the world who are also of the right but largely those jews who you know feel an attachment to israel and an affinity with israel but often find themselves defending israel from critics will find that is a tall order those people by the way those sort of liberal diaspora jews really liked were very comfortable with the coalition of change the lapid bennett offer uh, the pluralism of it was appealing for them. I think this will be a really hard sell. If they have to once again be explain to people that no, they don't necessarily agree with the Prime Minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, and on top of that, there's some ultra-rightist with a long back catalogue of pretty hateful statements, that will be a huge strain for diaspora Jews. And I think it would be a strain for Israel's friends around the world. I mean, Joe Biden has found it more uh, congenial to have in Israel a leader who is not uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. That's been easier for him, and it would be harder and harder still if it's Netanyahu, you know, propped up or kept in office by a party of the far right. Democrats, people on his own side, will look at that uh, catalogue of remarks by somebody and say. What is, you know, our president doing, shaking hands with a government that includes elements like this? So there's a world of pain awaiting Jews around the world, Israel's friends around the world, including governments, if that is the way it indeed goes, I would suggest. Yep. Well, also, you, you think that that would bring out, that galvanizes both bases, right? I mean, if you say the name Itamar Benkvild to the Israeli center-left, that's going to get them out to the polls. If you say that name to the Israeli Arab population, that might get them into the polls to, to thwart Ben Gvir himself. So it plays in all kinds of directions. I really have a hard time saying 41 days in what uh, left for the elections, what the, the outcome will be. But it's definitely a very big question. Well, since I've mentioned diaspora, why don't we hear a question on that theme? It's question number four. Hi, Yonit and Jonathan. This is Michael Weger from the Board of Deputies of British Jews. I'm wondering whether you think that this forthcoming election will produce an outcome of an Israeli Knesset that is more or less sympathetic to the interests and concerns of the Jewish diaspora. Thank you. I mean, great to hear from Michael Weger, a former mention of the week on our uh, podcast, I think, um, and good that he asked us that question. Uh, as I said, I think, you know, there are those issues that formally go in the kind of diaspora portfolio, and they're often issues that touch on Jewish identity, you know, Israeli, uh, its law, on the law of return, who does it define as a Jew, does it accept conversions by, you know, religious conversions by reform rabbis or only religious conversions that have been performed by orthodox rabbis. Those are questions. There are uh, Jewish women in diaspora who would like to see movement on, for example, access and equality of religious access services at the Western Wall in Jerusalem. All of these sorts of issues that are traditionally part of that diaspora portfolio, 
That said, I do think that the main one is one that isn't ever formally you know, branded as a diaspora issue, but it is the sort of complexion and composition of an Israeli government. And I venture to say, I don't know whether Michael Weigel and other diaspora leaders would agree with me, but that, you know, his words sympathetic to the interests and concerns of the Jewish diaspora, I think most Jews in the diaspora would prefer a government that isn't of such a hawkish or ultra-nationalist stripe that it causes discomfort for them in their own communities mm -hmm. and societies. Well, I mean, the important thing, I think, to, to note about this outgoing government is that for the first time in a long time, we didn't have the ultra-Orthodox parties inside the coalition. And that gave this government an option because remember, in, in all other issues, they had a veto, right? The left side and the right side had a veto. So you couldn't move with the Palestinian track. You couldn't annex, on the other hand, because each side had their own veto. You couldn't move in certain areas. But in areas like the connection between religion and, and state, you could move. And they tried to do that, right? They tried to make differences that I think could have made a difference also to diaspora Jews in relation to the Kotel uh, compromise, in relation to, you mentioned this, conversion, what Matan Kahana, the... Uh, Minister of Religious Affairs tried to do at the time was to say, take the power from the chief rabbinate, right, and say that in different cities in Israel, the rabbis of the cities could be in charge of conversions. That would give them more power. That didn't pass because they had only a year. So essentially, not a lot of the status quo in these issues changed, even though they had the intention to change them. To answer specifically the question, I think it really the question will be, will the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox be part of this next coalition? And then that would change in one way or the other, I think. Really glad you've got us into the question of the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox bloc. I mean, you and other commentators have wondered if how long will their patience run? Because they are in politics to be in government. They're not in politics to be, sit forever in opposition. They're there because they need to deliver to their constituents. So, I mean, is this, you know, the the last chance for Netanyahu to hold them? And do they, if they, if he can't do it, do they cross the floor and mm -hmm. go with someone else? And you mentioned Benny Gantz before. But also within that, I mean, I'm just interested in Haredi voters and where you think they're going. And this pressure to make sure more Haredi Jews are in education, that they become economically active. Is that a discussion Haredi voters are actually themselves having of who, you know, who's best for our future? Or mm -hmm. other, are, are there other secular voters who are saying, look, what are we going to do about this group of people who at the moment are not economically contributing to the society through work and taxation and so on? How is that playing out, in other words, as an issue both for the voters themselves and for other people thinking about them? For, first of all, it's a huge issue, right? I mean, when you think of the fact that in eight years, 2030, the population of Israel will be 11 million and there will be 2 million ultra-Orthodox. The question of their education, we saw this discussion this week on the New York Times and in Israel, right? The core studies, do they study math? Do they study English or Hebrew? Um, do they study science? What do they study and will they be part of the workforce is a crucial question for Israeli society. So everyone is asking this question. And, and what you're saying is, first of all, I think that the, the ultra-Orthodox are the only parties in Israel who actually have a constituency, right? They, they have a group, they vote as a group, they have a lot of power as a group. And will their patience run out if even now, Netanyahu, after the fifth elections, can't form a government, but they need budgets, they need to be part of the government, will they cross the threshold, cross the road, and, and join a coalition with Benny Gantz, which is someone who is palatable for them, by the way. Yair Lapid is much less. 
is a key question. There were some insinuations made by United Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazi part of the ultra-Orthodox uh, political map, saying they might. Then they took it back because their voters didn't like it. Remember, the United Torah Judaism, believe it or not, are losing a, some of their votes for the Itamar Ben-Gvir religious Zionist party. So they took it back. I don't know what they'll do in reality. Uh, Shas, which is the other part of the ultra-Orthodox party, I don't see them leaving Netanyahu's side uh, in the near future. But you're, you're right about this being an urgent question, which is asked not only by the secular part of Israel, also inside the community itself. We have a lot of other questions, by the way. There's a question I'm itching to ask you, which go if on. we can t- go away from the, you know, the main sort of question about Israeli politics, but um, I'm not sure who it was who asked us uh, this question. Oh, I, I know. It's um, the Times of Israel. It's Raul uh, Wutliff. I hope I'm saying his name correctly, but he asked us what of the UK's political system should be adopted in Israel and what would be a disaster if it were. What of the British system should be adapted into, adopted into the Israeli system, Jonathan? Well, Israel clearly needs a queen. <laughs> and I'm I'm looking at a very strong candidate for that role. <laughs> Sheer longevity. You've done the 20 years. No one knows your views on any issues, just like um, the late queen here. So I think um, I think Israel could do with a constitutional monarch. <laughs> I joke, of course. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the you know, Israel is a parliamentary system and is, so is this country. A dysfunctional but, parliamentary system, and, yes. And what I, what I, what I was going to say was that, you know, that Britain has a first-past-the-post system and therefore it doesn't get into this thing of coalitions. But Britain has itself not been a major advert for political stability. You know, a hung parliament in 2017 where they, there was no clear verdict from the voters and then in 2020... Uh, 2019, rather, a new government with a new prime minister. And yet Boris Johnson, as you've seen, did not last longer than three years. So we're reaching almost Israeli levels of instability here in the UK. So I'm not sure the British system is much of an advertisement either. Um, I did want to hear the Greek ambassador and his question. If we still have time for that, I'm not sure. But if we do, it's uh, question number three. Let's try and listen to that. Good evening. I am Kyriakos Lukakis, ambassador of Greece in Israel. And this is my question to the unholies. Israel is heading to its fifth general election in three and a half years. During that period, many significant geopolitical changes have taken place on the regional and international level. Israel is still facing a number of security and foreign policy challenges. Could the upcoming elections mark a change in Israel's foreign policy? Or chances are that the new government, any, new government would choose the path of continuity in main areas such as Iran, the Palestinians, the peace process with the Palestinians, relations with the United States, and of course, Eastern Mediterranean. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Lukakis adds this interesting question about Iran, for example, and relations with the US. And we've both just talked before about the uh, continuity or not on the Palestinian question, but what about the ambassador's thoughts about whether things shift in terms of Israel's stance on Iran and elsewhere if there's a new government? Well, first of all, I, I think it will be a different... If Netanyahu is elected prime minister, there will be a very different relationship with a democratic president in the United States for now. That that should be said, I think. Uh, on the issue of Iran, look, uh, we are in an election season. So what you're hearing from people like uh, Prime Minister Lapid, Secretary of Defense Gantz, you're hearing 
things that will sound like Netanyahu as well, because they don't want to be caught less hawkish than he sounds. So when he says this is a terrible deal, this shouldn't happen, the return to the JCPOA, they agree with him. Inside the security echelon in Israel, there is a, uh, an argument going on whether at this point we have arrived at it's better to have a deal, any deal than no deal. Uh, so Israel is arguing on this. I, I think the, the general answer to the question would be there's not going to be a huge difference because the political situation is unstable and it will probably continue to be unstable even after November 1st. So I think anyone who aspires to have his hand on the helm of power will try not to shake the boat too much in any direction at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's a message of continuity, I think, on that mm -hmm. point. I'm, I'm with those, as you know, um, we've talked about before, who think a deal is better than not, and I've thought it all the way along, um, and events, I think, have borne that out. One question which we have to close out on just because we couldn't have asked for a, a, more of a gift. How could new Israeli citizens who've just moved to Israel understand the system, the politics in general? What are the best ways to decide who's the best candidate for them? Which media sources do you recommend? What would you Ob recommend, Jonathan Friedland? I don't well, know. What are you obviously, thinking? Obviously, they need to be watching you on Channel 12 News. No, that wasn't also, what I was aiming to. That I would not. make a general, gentle recommendation that you should be listening, uh, unnamed questioner, to the Unholy Podcast every week where you can hear me and Yonit Levy in conversation. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to be with you for the, at the Centre for Jewish Impact for this conversation. Uh, Yonit, I think um, we've, you, well, you've taught me a lot, certainly, today. <laughs> um, I thought it was, uh, I, I hope that we, I, I always am worried about talking about Israeli politics because it's so complicated. I have to admit, it's complicated for me too. Like I can look at it and I'm like, I don't understand. You have to see that when at 10 o'clock at night, when I get the exit polls on election night and I look at the numbers and I look at the list of parties and I, and I say, what? is going on. So it's it's amazing. I will just let you like leave, Jonathan, with this thinking about the Israeli public going to the polls four times in three and a half years. And the election, the voter turnout is still around 70%. It's either a little bit lower or a little bit higher. The highest uh, rate, by the way, was in the third election, 71%. And as much as, you know, they're, they're driving the Israeli public crazy, but they're still going to the polls. They're still going to vote. It's still important to them. And I think that is an optimistic tone. I mean, we're, we're going to vote. We still care about it. We're not really decisive, but we do care. So I think that is that is very, very important. Uh, that is a positive thought. Whatever else you can say about <laughs> Israel, and uh, heaven knows plenty of people have lots to say, uh, including those people who've been with us today. It is a vibrant and uh, active boisterous democracy. Um, I think these questions we've had, we thank all the people, diplomats, listeners, diplomats who are listeners, all of you. We thank you for your questions. Apologies to those whose questions we couldn't get to. But thank you so much for sending them and for listening to us this afternoon. Well, that was great fun. I mean, lots of really engaged, interesting questions. You know, that is the representatives of the world in Israel. And there they are, engaged and curious. And lots of the things that have preoccupied us in our conversations, you realize they preoccupy them as well. Yeah, and that they're really knowledgeable. I mean, the questions are really good questions. They're not like these general queries, but they're really good thing, people who really understand what's going on and just want to know 
you know, I'm not sure we answered because <laughs> maybe we just confused them a little bit more, but I thought that was, I, I had fun doing it. It was an interesting. No, was interesting. Me, me as well. Um, we have our usual business to transact, by which, of course, I mean the handing out of awards. I thought I uh, wanted to get in early with the Chutzpah Award because I think it is breathtaking. And that is Vladimir Putin of Russia announcing his partial mobilization, calling up you know reservists to fight his war in Ukraine, clearly feeling the heat and the pressure because Ukraine have had some striking military successes in recent days. But one of the things he said was that the West want to divide and destroy Russia. And just this use of particularly the word divide struck me as such chutzpah because what we know of Russian intelligence efforts, particularly in the American election, but on social media, in the Brexit referendum, in other things, the one thing they really want to do is divide Western societies against themselves. And so that was a really classic case of, I don't know what the psychologist term for it, of sort of projection, mirroring, one of those terms, I think projection, where something which is absolutely true of him, um, he is um, alleging of others. That just seemed to me a classic chutzpah. It's you who's trying to divide Western societies, and it's a chutzpah to make that allegation of others. That's even before we get into the just the vicious and vile, appalling brutality of this war. Uh, more uh, revelations coming out all the time of what Russian occupation meant in terms of uh, mass graves being discovered and so on. So, you know, at the very least, a chutzpah award for Vladimir Putin. At the very least, as you say. Well, okay, let's go to Mensch, which is always more sympathetic, and we could, you know, have fun with this. I think we usually, like 99% of the time, give it out to um, people, <laughs> women or men. But this time, may I please uh, give it out to the Q, which was the most glorious British thing I've ever Scene. I mean, I thought about, and you saw it up close, uh, the queue this week. We opened up talking about the funeral, but it was such a British, polite, uh, respectful thing. I'm thinking of, of other nations, not naming any country in particular in which either riots would break out at this kind of queue after half an hour. People will be selling tickets to the queue or blaming other nations for the length of the queue. But you had this sort of patient, calm, polite um, moment. So I'm giving it to the British Q. I know it's strange, but that's the, my Mensch Award of the week. I think it's a very good choice. Somebody was joking on Twitter that there is going to be a Richard Curtis movie called The <laughs> Q, and you're going to have all these in the you know in the style of Love Actually, all these different people. Hugh Bonneville, uh, you know, will be in the queue, and there'll be a couple who meet in the queue. It was such a British thing. Somebody said that, of course, it would have been possible to do internet booking, you know, where you could have booked a slot yeah. online. No, the organisers understood that the Brits wanted to queue. Yep. It was part of the th the therapeutic act of mourning to queue for 13 hours, seven hours with your sandwiches and everything. And you're right. There were no reports of any scuffles or anything like it. It was a very British thing. I'm happy to second that nomination of the queue for <laughs> I our I knew you would. I knew you would. Um, remember, if you have enjoyed Unholy and uh, uh, want to spread the word, do that among your friends. Do it via social media. There is the Unholy podcast page on Facebook. Lots of, lots of talk there where you can make suggestions and so on. Uh, we're on Instagram at 2Jews. Um, and Jonathan's and lurking on 
on both of them. So just, he has a pseudonym, but he's... We are in the picture. Um, and uh, do spread the word there if you can. And this is that moment where we say our uh, thank yous, our huge thank yous, to uh, Gaia Glazer, Omer Prima, to Rom Attic, Yair Bashan, and also uh, to Sonia Gomez de Mesquita and to Robert Singer, our friends at uh, the Center for Jewish Impact. Jonathan, have a great year. Only good news. I want to hear only good news from you this year. I'm not sure how, the, how good that will be for our podcast, but you're <laughs> right. Um, I wish you and all the listeners, Shana, Tova, a happy new year. Let's, uh, these are ho- high holy days, but they are also holidays. So let's make sure we have a good break and see you on the other side. Shana Tova. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.